a month ago, I spoke out of Psalm 110. And uh, I want to do that again, kind of pick up where we left off. This amazing Psalm of David is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. And I think we'll see why even more tonight. It is an incredible psalm, uh, very short, but loaded with important truth. It's obviously a messianic psalm. In fact, it's one of the few, what you might call directly messianic psalms. Some, some of the psalms, uh, like for instance Psalm 22, the psalmist writes about his own experience, but in words that go far beyond his own experience uh, and circumstances and describe something that uh, applied to the Messiah as well. But that's not the case here. In this psalm, this psalm speaks directly about the Messiah. So let's begin by just reading through this psalm, and then we'll start to um, look at some of the verses. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, already I did what I did last time, and that is I forgot to read the little uh, subscript there. It is a psalm of David. That's important. Um, those, some of those titles underneath are, are added, uh, but, but those little subscripts under the psalms, those are inspired. So we know this is a psalm of David because that's what the Word of God tells us. Okay, so let's start again. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand, he will shatter kings in the day of thy wrath, in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from a brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's just pray here again before we go on. Father, we ask for your help in understanding this amazing psalm. We pray for your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, the se- section that we looked at last time um, was the first three verses. And they present this coming Messiah. It's a messianic psalm, so he's speaking of the coming Messiah as a ruler who will subdue his enemies. The section that we'll begin to look at tonight, and I say begin because we won't get through the the rest of it tonight, I don't think. I'm sure we won't. 
This section that we're looking at tonight presents him as a priest. So the first section, he was a ruler, a king. Now this section presents him as a priest, a priest that will live forever and shatter all opposition. So overall then we have a picture of the Messiah given to us in this psalm as a royal priest, the royal being kingly and the priest being uh, a priest. Now that was something that was forbidden in Israel. The king could not also be a priest. In fact, when Saul tried it, he got into a lot of trouble taking the, the priestly function into his own hands. So, <clears throat> the main thing that I tried to bring out last time in those first three verses, I just want to just kind of skim over that quickly. <clears throat> Though this coming Messiah was to be David's descendant, yet he would also be David's sovereign. This is what Jesus confounded the Pharisees with um, in the New Testament. If David calls him Lord, which is there in the first verse, the Lord says to my Lord, the sovereign Jehovah says to David's Lord, um, thou uh, sit at my right hand. So, Jesus brings up to the Pharisees, if David calls him Lord, how is he David's son? Well, they, they couldn't answer that. Here was the greatest king of Israel calling this person Lord. <clears throat> Not only this, but the Lord God, Jehovah, says that this Messiah says to him, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. God puts this one in the position of highest authority. Whoever this one was, this one that David calls Lord, he's put by God into a position of highest authority because God says, sit at my right hand, which is a position of authority, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. This shows that this Messiah was to be far above any angel or principality or any earthly power. The coming Messiah is Lord. Because God made him that. Made him both Lord and Christ, um, the Messiah. He will reign at God's right hand until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. <clears throat> He's even now ruling in the midst of his enemies, and his rule is being extended from Zion. You see that? In verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. He's doing that right now, and uh, I believe that he's doing that through the church. Uh, he's extending his kingdom from Zion, which I take to be spiritual Israel or the church. Now, I'm sure there would be some people that would disagree with that, but I, I do think that's um, the spiritual application of these verses. Those people that have volunteered freely in the day of His power. That's what the church is made up of. People who have volunteered freely in the day of His power. The Messiah is even now gathering a great army, army clothed in holy array, as it says in verse 3. <clears throat> so, the church 
Um, if we could see the people of God as God sees them, it would be like the dew on the morning grass. That's the picture that's given to us here. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a lot of it. There's many. They're marvelous. They're beautiful drops reflecting the light of the Messiah. Now, I, I know that's a speculative, speculative interpretation, um, but um, I think there's some merit to it. Anyway, that's what we covered last time, <clears throat> which brings us to this new section, verses 4 through 7. And in this, we see that God has also made this kingly Messiah, this one who's ruling and is extending his kingdom out right now, he's also made this kingly Messiah an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see that? We'll just read verse 4 because that's really as far as we'll get tonight. And I just want to read it once more here. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, here we have a person brought up, Melchizedek, and you might say, well, that's, that surely can't have much application to me today. Here's a guy with a strange name that if you, <clears throat> after you leave this building, you're not likely, unless you talk with somebody here tonight, you're not likely to meet anybody in the next year that will talk to you about Melchizedek. <clears throat> unless he's a Christian that's been reading Hebrews. <clears throat> it's just not something that you're going to hear about. You're not going to read about him in a standard textbook on history of the world. But uh, what we'll see tonight is this man was tremendously important. And if we're going to understand this messianic prophecy, we have to look back to the book of Genesis to see who this guy was. <clears throat> look back uh, to the brief account of Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek back in Genesis 14. But if we're really going to understand it, we have to look forward into the New Testament to understand the verses in Hebrews. So let me, let me just put this in a kind of a time frame for you here because this, this helps me to think about this. Because we have uh, these, this one verse here in Psalm 110 Actually, maybe four verses that speak something about him, <clears throat> which was written by David. That was a thousand BC, okay? A thousand, approximately, a thousand years before Christ. If you go back a thousand years from that, think of this now a thousand years, this is a big jump. Go back a thousand years to find any other reference to this guy in all of the literature of the Jewish people. You don't find anything until you get clear back to 2000 B.C. Uh, at the time of Abraham. And there you see a few verses about this man, Melchizedek. So what you have is, is a situation where 2000 B.C. Abraham has an encounter with this Melchizedek. A thousand years later, David writes a little bit about it here in Psalm 110. And then a thousand years later, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews explains these things to us so that we see how important this guy really was. <clears throat> it, to me, it's incredible because 
you have just very little about this guy, and yet he's so important. Uh, so let's turn back to Genesis 14. What we find when we begin to look at Abraham's very brief encounter with Melchizedek is that these few verses in Genesis and then these few verses in Psalm 110 are the basis for radically altering our view of the priesthood in the New Testament. And even even our understanding of our relationship to the law of Moses. In other words, something that we could easily read over if we weren't careful is absolutely foundational for our understanding of God's dealings with mankind. And I think right there, before we even read this, there's, just, there's a lesson there. Because we need to <clears throat> not be so intent on getting through the Bible really quickly as we read. We might skip over something that's radical and very important. Here are uh, just uh, three or four verses related to Melchizedek in the Old Testament <clears throat> in, in Genesis. Easily read over in, in a minute and yet very important. So, who was this Melchizedek who met, met Abraham? Um, well, before I read it, let me just give a little historical background here. <clears throat> might help us as we, as we read it. Um, Abraham and his extended family have moved out of Ur of the Chaldees. They li- that's over on uh, the Euphrates River, over in the uh, Mesopotamia. I got the map. Maybe I better do it. It <clears throat> might help a little bit for some that haven't uh, seen this before. Okay, let me get my bearings here. Okay, so here's, here's Canaan. Over here on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers was Ur, that was Abraham's hometown. God tells him to leave there, and if he, w- if he went straight across, it'd be probably about 600 miles, but they didn't do that. They followed the trade routes which, remember from your history, was the Fertile Crescent. It came, came this way and came down this way. Okay, so Abraham leaves here and comes over here and settles. And he has his family with him and his nephew, Lot, is with him. And they settle down. Uh, again, this is around 2000 B.C. The land was populated by tribal princes. They called themselves kings. They usually had small armies, and they were kind of the, the leader of a city-state type area that uh, uh, many of these were in this area that uh, was called Canaan, after the Canaanites. Uh, you, might, you might remember uh, from your study of Genesis that Lot... Abraham's nephew, chose to live near Sodom. It looked like it was the best place, well-watered, 
and Abraham gave him the choice. He, uh, they had to. They were living together for a while, they and their families, but their flocks got too numerous to all stay together, so Abraham says, you pick the area you want to go to and I'll go somewhere else. So uh, Lot chose to live near Sodom, which proved, of course, to be a big mistake. Well, anyway, leading up to the time here of Melchizedek, four kings under the leadership of a man named Cheddar Laomer, uh, something like that, anyway. Cheddar Laomer, I don't know where you put the put the uh, accent. I'd like to just call him Cheddar and be a lot easier. <laughs> but anyway, he was kind of the the ringleader of four kings, and these four kings actually were not from this area here where Abraham was. They were back from over in this area here, but they had taken over uh, some of the city-states in this area, and these, pe- these people here were paying tribute to these guys. But they decided they didn't want to do that anymore. We're tired of paying money to these other kings, so they stopped doing it, which made these guys come over and try to recapture this area. So you got four kings coming from over here, fighting against five kings uh, from this area. One of those kings from this area where Abraham was, was the king of Sodom. And the five kings lost to the four kings. Um, And consequently, uh, Lot and his family were taken captive from Sodom. Now, did I lose anybody? I mean, it's kind of straightforward history here. you got kings fighting with one another. They've been doing that for centuries. Well, they were doing it back then, except it wasn't quite as big of a... These these were smaller city-states. And so anyway, Sodom gets taken uh, by these four kings, and Lot and his family get taken away. When Abraham hears about this uh, bad situation for his nephew, he organizes a small army... Um, and he takes some other people with him from some of these other uh, areas that were around him, uh, and they defeat this Chatter Laomor, or Cheddar, and uh, rescue Lot. Um, as that brings us up to where we're where we're going to start reading. As Abraham is returning from these battles, this, uh, the New Testament says the slaughter of the kings, as he, Abraham's returning from them, the king of Sodom meets him. Now this king of Sodom had been defeated. Uh, he was one of the five kings that were defeated, but apparently he wasn't killed because he comes out to meet Abraham. And... Uh, what he's basically wanting to do is get his people back. But at that point, as this king of Sodom comes out to meet Abraham, uh, something amazing happens. Another king shows up. And this king uh, had not been involved in these battles. In fact, we don't really know how he came to be in that area in the first place. But he was there, and he was the king of Salem, which uh, 
is, well, I, it, w- it won't be marked on here, except that uh, it was probably right there. This is the Dead Sea. Sodom, <coughs> Sodom was down towards the south end of the Dead Sea, and Salem was right, right there. Now, the reason I can point it out uh, is because it's very likely that Salem was what later became Jerusalem. So we know approximately where that is on the map. Uh, so you have the situation here where you got this, this one king, uh, the king of Sodom, coming out to meet Abraham. At the same time, another king comes out who wasn't part of any of these battles. He's the king of Salem, and he's, this man is called Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So let's start reading there. That's where we're, uh, we'll, we'll start just with verse uh, 17 here. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Now, again, they're talking about Abraham here. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So you have these two kings that are dealing with Abraham here, but uh, they're obviously quite different kings. Let me just say, here, here, here was this Melchizedek living in Canaan, amongst the Canaanites, amongst all these people who were polytheists, who were idolaters, who practiced all kinds of evil, and yet he was a priest to the true God. Now, to me, that's, this is incredible, that you had this priest of the Most High God in the midst of all of this uh, false worship and false gods. How did this come to be? Uh, where did he come from? We're not, we're not told, but here he is. He just shows up. Uh, a priest king that Abraham realizes is worthy of great honor. So it, I think it's worth just thinking a little bit uh, the, the contrast between these two kings that met Abraham. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. The king of Sodom ruled over an evil people. Uh, we know that's true. Even prior, I mean, we know later on what happened to Sodom, but even prior to that, at this time, uh, if you look back at uh, 
13, chapter 13, verse 13. It says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. That was already a, what, that didn't happen later on. That, that was the case right now. It was a case when this king of Sodom came out. He was ruling over a wicked people. And in fact, the, uh, some commentators bring out that his name, uh, which we find out um, in uh, verse 2 of chapter 14, Bura was a king of Sodom. It's related to the Hebrew verb rea, which means bad or evil. So probably this was an evil king that ruled over an evil people. Uh, and surely that's one of the reasons that Abraham, Abram chose to reject the offer uh, uh, from this king of the captured property that... Uh, uh, the king said, well, you can have that, but just give the people back. Well, uh, Ab- Abram didn't want to take anything from him. Uh, actually, it wasn't that king's to give anymore anyway. He'd lost it in the battle. Uh, Abraham, Abram had retaken it, and uh, it wasn't his to give. But nevertheless, Abram said, I'm not taking anything from you. I've already got that settled with God. I'm not taking one little thread of what we captured. And he said there was a reason for that. He, he didn't want that king to be able to boast, I've made Abram rich. So that's what the king of Sodom was like. But what about this king of Salem? What, uh, what was he like? Well, he was just the opposite of that. First of all, we note the uh, significance of his name. Uh, his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Now, you find that out if you read the New Testament the book of Hebrews. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, just the opposite of, of the other king. And he was king of Salem. Now, Salem means peace. It's very close to the shalom, uh, that, that uh, Hebrew uh, word the Hebrews use for peace. So, king of Salem means king, king of peace. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Um, so here you have uh, one who is king of righteousness and the king of peace. And uh, even that, I think, is significant. The order that uh, that's brought out in, you have to have righteousness before you have peace. Um, as I said earlier, uh, this Salem was most likely Jerusalem. Uh, one good place to just see the, uh, a verse that points that out, just this kind of an aside, but I think it's interesting that this, this place where Melchizedek was king later on became Jerusalem. But if you look at Psalm 76... <clears throat> And uh, verses 1 and 2. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. 
and his tabernacle is in Salem. Where was the tabernacle? Where was the temple? It was in Jerusalem. His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is, is Zion. So I think that's a, a good indication that this Salem later on became Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So, um, here was Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of peace. But not only was he a king, he was a priest. In fact, this is, this is significant, I think. This is the first mention of a priest in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? Generally speaking, when you see the first mention of something in the Bible, it has some significance. And I think this certainly does. First mention of a priest in the Bible. So, think about this. Here is a man living at least 500, about 600 years before Moses establishes the priesthood. 600 years. And yet... He was a priest of God and he appears on the scene in the midst of evil and in the midst of an idolatrous society, the Canaanites. A monotheist surrounded by polytheists. A priest of the Most High God when all these other kings and city-states were worshipping false gods. Uh, And he, this priest, Melchizedek, has a real understanding of something of the nature of God because he sees him both as transcendent and imminent. Transcendent, you see that in verse 19, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He's the, he's the creator. He's the possessor of, of everything. He's not just some local deity. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He's transcendent overall. He's the creator. But he's also the imminent sustainer of his people. You see that in verse 20. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. In other words, this transcendent God works right down into history in the lives of his people. So um, Melchizedek has a good understanding of the, the nature of God. He, he is a king and a priest. As I said before, something absolutely forbidden to the Jewish people later on. No one could perform both of those functions. But Melchizedek did. He was a king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And uh, another thing that shows his insight into, the, into the, the ways of God is just he recognized that Abram was a follower of God and that God was watching over him in a special way. Uh, to me, it's incredible how he comes out to this man. I don't know if you know if he heard the reports of the battle uh, that had taken place, but he comes out to this man. What's he bring out? He brings out bread and wine. Incredible. Um, I don't know how much we can make of that, but surely, um, I mean, that was common food. But uh, the fact that uh, there's not very much recorded about Melchizedek, and that's one of the things that's recorded. I think God uh, had that uh, point, uh, pointed out or, or put in the Scripture for a purpose. So, uh, a very important uh, coming together of Abraham and Melchizedek, this king of Salem. 
Another significant thing that uh, we can learn about Melchizedek from this portion is that he appears on the scene without any genealogy. You see, almost always in the Old Testament when somebody shows up, when we're told about somebody, we're told that he's son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so. Nothing like that about Melchizedek. Uh, no account of his parents, of his birth, or of his death. And the writer of, of Hebrews, uh, thousands of years later, makes a big point of this, that he, there's no genealogy here. Uh, he makes him appear to have a, a perpetual preacher. Uh, priesthood without any beginning or end. And now, some have taken that to mean, well, this must be a, an Old Testament manifestation of Christ. There are a few of those in the Old Testament. But I don't think that's the case. Because this man was a king. This was, you know, those Old Testament manifestations lasted just briefly. Um, but here was a man who was a king of a, of a city-state. Uh, I think he was an amazing man. Uh, and one that God had made a tremendous revelation to, but I don't think he was a uh, Old Testament uh, manifestation of Christ. Um, but nevertheless, he was one who Abraham recognized as being in a very special position. In fact, it we're told that Melchizedek blessed. Abraham, and the principle there is that the the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, a father would bless a son. You don't have a son blessing a father. It's always the the, the greater blessing the lesser, and that's what was happening here. Melchizedek blessed Abraham uh, by virtue of the fact that he did that. We see that even though Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, here was someone greater than Abraham that came out of this city to bless him. Um, again, we see the superiority of Melchizedek in the fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Let's um, just mention real quick, he gave, and he gave him a tenth of all. Um, very brief uh, uh, statement there, but nevertheless, I think very important. <clears throat> to give him a tenth part of the spoils, even though Melchizedek had not been part of the battle at all, um, was an indication of his superiority. This tithe was not asked for, nor was it demanded. It was just a result of Abraham recognizing the great importance of this man that was standing there before him. Um, one common set commentator said, by tithing to God's priest Melchizedek, Abraham was worshiping God for giving him the victory. Melchizedek, the priest and representative of God, received Abraham's gift as an act of worship of, the most, of God Most High. So, the writer of Hebrews goes even further with this thing of, of uh, Abraham's tithe and says that in a manner of speaking, even Levi, who came later, who was the, the uh, representative of the priesthood, even, even Levi, uh, who was a descendant of Abraham, was in a way paying tithes uh, through Abraham. 
In other words, Abraham represented all the later kings and priests of the Jewish people. He was the father of the, of the Jewish people. And he represented them when he gave this tithe to Melchizedek. So, in a manner of speaking, the Levitical priesthood was subordinate to the priesthood of Melchizedek because they gave a tithe to Melchizedek by way of Abraham. So, you can read, read that uh, uh, um, way of understanding this again in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. One last thing that's important to note, <clears throat> and this time it's from Psalm 110, is that this coming Messiah was to be made a priest forever by an oath from God. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he was this Messiah was to be made a priest forever, and God said that with an oath. He said, you're going to be a priest, and that's something he swore to. No Levitical priest had such an oath, and consequently, they all died. If God would have told them any one of them had been a priest forever, they would have lived forever. But they didn't. They all died. Uh, and there's only one priest that fits the bill, and that's Christ, our high priest. Uh, so you have some amazing things presented in these few verses in Genesis uh, here that we read out of Genesis 14 and then these few verses in Psalm 110 concerning Melchizedek and the Messiah. Now, like I said, the writer of Hebrews draws from these two, these two very brief sections and teaches many things to the New Testament church concerning Christ and especially how that he is the one who has made possible to come to God through a new and living way. So, um, let's, uh, let's turn back to Psalm 110. <clears throat> really all I've done here this evening is dealt with verse 4, but I do want to, to expand on that uh, down to the end of the, ch uh, the chapter here, the end of this psalm. We'll have to wait and do that next time. But I just want to make these brief observations here in closing. <clears throat> we've looked at Psalm 110, verse 4, and we've looked at the account of Melchizedek back in Genesis chapter 14. Now, we won't take time to read all through the uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews, but... There's a whole chapter where the writer of Hebrews expands out on these two brief sections and teaches how radical and how important this man Melchizedek was to our whole understanding of, uh, of how we relate to God and how we can draw near to God. Let me just make the points here that, that he makes without spending time in the actual chapter. What he shows is that God never planned the Jewish Levitical priesthood to be permanent. It never was planned to be that way. He'd already 
established a permanent priesthood, and that's the one of Melchizedek. This other one was just to teach us about how sinful we are and how much we need a Savior, how much we need a high priest, how holy God is. But he never intended that priesthood to be permanent. Um, but that doesn't mean we, we, we don't need a priest. We still need a priest because of our sins and our separation from God. With that also, goes right along with this, God never intended that the sacrifices that the Jewish priest offered would permanently and per- perfectly take away sin. He had a way of doing it, but it wasn't those Jewish sacrifices. It was the priest that came in the order of Melchizedek would make that possible. Uh, the perfect cleansing of sin. Another thing that the writer of Hebrews brings out is that God has now replaced the whole Old Testament way of relating to himself, to God, with a better way in Christ. We have a perfect priest who offers a perfect sacrifice, perfecting God's people forever. And it's all, that priesthood is all based upon this uh, work of the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then lastly, the the big thing, the overarching thing, is that since Christ was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek and that priesthood was perfect and permanent, that means that the Levitical priesthood has been superseded and when it was superseded, that does away with the entire old old mosaic system. See, this is, this is how radical this thing of, of Melchizedek is. Because when the, when the priesthood changes, there had to be a necessity of changing of the law and, and a setting aside of that whole system. The Levitical priesthood was so tied, tied so closely to the Mosaic law that if the one came to end, and end, the other must also. So, uh, well, why don't we just... <clears throat> let's turn to Hebrews. We'll just read this one since it's... Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, and I'll get this little parenthesis, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? And then if you skip on down... For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of the law also. Also, So when the, when the one was shown to be superseded, when that priesthood was shown to be superseded by the priesthood of Melchizedek, it also showed that the law was to be, um, the whole mosaic system was to be set aside. Um, Well, there's, there's a, a number of verses here in Hebrews that we could look at. The point is we have a better hope because we have a better covenant based on better promises mediated by a better high priest who offers a better sacrifice. So that's what God was planning when he had Melchizedek come out from Salem and meet Abraham. That was all in the works way back there 
in Genesis 14 when he came out to bless Abraham. So, I guess the point I want to bring home is that this very brief mention of this man, Melchizedek, really the first mention of a priest, is of incredible importance to us. It paved the way for the one supreme high priest whose sacrifice of himself and whose eternal intercession guarantees eternal salvation for all who would believe. So all that's wrapped up in the uh, priesthood of Melchizedek in these very few verses that we find in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so we'll take, we'll, Lord willing, we'll take up from there next time and learn a little bit more uh, concerning this priest king that uh, is spoken of in in Psalm 110. This this uh, psalm telling us of the coming Messiah.